Hi, and welcome to another episode of the ULI Toronto Electric Cities podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson. For this season four of the podcast, I'll be interviewing some of our industry's most prominent leaders, whose organizations got their start in Toronto and have now successfully grown to take on fascinating and complex projects beyond our nation's borders. Oxford Properties Group is one such organization. As the real estate investment arm of OMERS, one of Canada's largest pension plans, Oxford is one of the world's premier real estate investment, development, and management companies. They manage over $40 billion of real estate assets, with a global portfolio spanning over 60 million square feet in Canada, Europe, and the United States, including the recently opened Hudson Yards in New York, the largest private real estate development in the United States. Joining me to talk about the company, its Toronto roots, and the phenomenal scale of projects it currently manages, I'm really lucky to have Michael Turner with me today president of Oxford Properties. So, Michael, thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Uh, my pleasure, and thank you for the opportunity. And you'll, you'll have to excuse me in advance if there's some uh, background noise and distractions. I sit on a corner of 450 Park um, at 57th in Midtown Manhattan, and it's one of the, two, it's one of the few um, two-way by two-way street intersections in the city, so we get a lot of emergency vehicles Okay. Going up and down here, and you might hear um, some fire uh, interruptions with sirens or police or dignitaries making their way down the street to the UN um, offices. So I apologize if that's the case. I actually like it. It it gives a dynamic element to the to the interview, and and just for everyone listening, this is the very first time that. I'm doing a podcast uh, interview with the phone, and and Michael, before we uh, we recorded this, you were telling me this is the first time for you. So so Michael, when I when I looked you up on LinkedIn, there were a couple of things that stood out for me. Uh, in addition to your very successful career trajectory, the first is that just like me, you have a master's degree in urban planning. I thought that was really great to see. The second is that you are the host of a monthly video series called the Oxford Monthly, where every month you get in front of the camera and highlight something about Oxford properties, either a project, a program about your staff, or something else. I think it's a really great idea and a great effort on your part. So just curious, why did you decide to do it? Yeah, so it was really, um, um, I think the genesis was two things. One was the opportunity for freshness. I've, I've been in the role of a leader of the business for about 22 months. So when you step into an opportunity, you, you get to reimagine how you might engage. And the other was just quite practical. And when I first assumed the leadership of Oxford Properties globally, um, I spent months on an airplane and I still spent a lot of time on an airplane so it was a matter of scale. How am I able to communicate to people in a way that's more accessible and more engaging and more genuine than just an email when we have offices all around the world and people, um, sometimes they're awake in some part of the world and sometimes they're asleep. 
So the Oxford Monthly was an idea to tell our story to our own employees in a way that was um, fun. And that's really, it's no more complicated than that. And it's, uh, it's part of our narrative at this point. And so, so far, what's the response been like? It's, I mean, it's not just for those within the company. I mean, I, I was able to see some of those videos as well. What's been the response like? Well, the, the origin was um, for the company, and we quickly realized um, all electronic forms of communication now can get out anywhere. And, of course, when you have something like a video it's, it's, that's embedded in YouTube, it's going to be distributed perhaps beyond what you originally thought. So we thought, let's make it a, a channel to tell our story to the whole world. Uh, I think it's being good. You know, we when you look at your engagement on a distribution like LinkedIn, you, you can see that your message is being heard from Singapore to Sydney to Surrey, BC. So I, I am pleased, and um, we get all kinds of feedback around it, some of which is more endearing than others, uh, but it's 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 been fun. Why don't you give me a little bit of a, an overview of Oxford um, Properties? A few I've mentioned a few basic facts in the intro, um, but what is it that you like to how how do you like to describe Oxford Properties um, and the range of real estate development activity that you're taking on, and and a bit about the company's global presence? Sure. So I, I'd I'd answer that in a few ways if you if you give me some time to put some color on that, and one is. Um, What's our purpose? And our purpose is to connect people to exceptional places. And we often forget about the fact that, you know, we are creating environments that service uh, people, a customer, a need, and buildings um, are not just objects. So we try to stay, you know, relevant to that purpose. And of course, when you talk about it in terms of numbers, it sounds quite mechanical. And you highlighted a few of them. I think what you've illustrated as well is likely my LinkedIn page is not up to date because we're at, at this stage, 60 billion in assets and 100 million square feet. Oh, my apologies. Um, we, we have offices uh, in four continents, nine countries, 22 primary cities. We have about 2,200 employees. An important part of our business model is partners. So we have a number of institutional partners that are like and similar to our stakeholder OMERS, who like to invest around the world, but otherwise don't have our operating or development capabilities. So an alignment of interest with our um, money in projects, as well as our expertise, um, is something that's a value proposition to others. So we've been on this journey of global expansion since, um, meaningfully since 2008. Mm-hmm. And at this point, about 60% of the business is not in Canada. Uh, 40% is in Canada. And that proportion of Canada relative to the rest of the world will continue to shrink. Um, And that is not because the Canadian business is shrinking. It's just not growing as fast as the rest of the world. Hmm. So if I fast forward a few years, it'll probably be more like 25 or 30% Canada and 75% plus or minus in um, other jurisdictions like the United States, parts of Europe, Asia, and Australia. Why don't you just characterize the type of real estate development assets or development activity that 
um, you're you're into and um, and and that the types of activity that you foresee yourself uh, investing in in the future. Sure. So we're really um, a thematic investor, and that's just because of our scale, and um, we invest in all different food groups, if you will, offices, residential properties, retail assets, warehouses, um, hospitality, and what we call alternative assets. Um, We're also a lender. Um, We are a lender more in the higher risk uh, premium space as a mezzanine lender for those who are looking for capital that you're not going to get from a traditional bank. Uh, That's part of our uh, toolkit. And so we think about balancing the portfolio amongst those food groups with a bias to um, certain sectors or geographies that have greater growth characteristics than others and or where we think we can build um, sustained competitive advantage. Hmm. On any given day, you know, 10 to 15% of our uh, portfolio is in development, which means that... um, any given day of the week, we have about $6 billion of active development projects. Those tend to be pretty urban, uh, but we also build a lot of warehouses in markets where we have a logistics business. And, um, you know, we also build multifamily rental. We don't build multifamily for sale. We build multifamily for rent. Hmm. So that gives you some flavor as to, um, you know, the types of things we do. We're not exclusively just an office owner and developer. We're not exclusively just a retail owner and developer. Um, we are in multiple food groups in those markets that I just mentioned around the world. So at what point did Oxford embark on this multiple food group platform? Has it always been a sort of a diversified investment, uh, or did it take time to evolve? Yeah, that's a good question, and I would say the evolution is ongoing it's not done and it'll never be done because when you are a thematic investor as well as just practical about where opportunities um you know you shift around your asset mix and your balance sheet but we did start this journey to diversify in canada um probably about 12 years ago and we're a little further behind in other jurisdictions where we aren't as mature, so say the U.S. or Europe. Traditionally, the the company came from an office company background. Mm. The first building that was built by Oxford was called the Baker Building in Edmonton, and it was a medical office building, and we've been a heavy office company primarily throughout our six decades or 60 years of history. but in the last decade, we've been diversifying with intention into some other sectors. What, what was it that prompted that intention um, when you first decided to go global um, uh, with a diversified uh, base? Was it just the, the, as you mentioned earlier, that the, the appeal of the Canadian market just wasn't strong enough? Is, is that one of the reasons or, or are there others? No, I, I wouldn't say the appeal of the Canadian market is not strong enough. The, the Canadian market's actually uh, screens very well. Um, mm. Certainly cities like Toronto and uh, Vancouver, where we have a, a meaningful presence in both. Um, it's a matter of scale. 
So in a market like Toronto, where we'd have a 12 million square foot office portfolio and probably a seven or eight million square foot logistics portfolio, um, certain asset types, it doesn't make sense for us to be bigger in uh, from a risk standpoint and concentrated in one market. And in other um, asset types like warehousing or, or multifamily rental, um, we find it difficult to get enough scale in terms of capital deployment in Toronto or in Vancouver. So it was a matter about a larger opportunity set um, in the rest of the world when you open up your eyes to what else is out there. Not We didn't like what we saw in Canada. I see. So what is it that um, gives Oxford the edge over uh, over other local and global competitors in, in all the markets that you're investing in? It's a great question, and I, it is, it's a combination of things. And so I often describe internally, um, as well as to partners of ours, that there are four parts to our business. We have our capital, our capabilities, co-investors, and our culture. And so it's the combination of those things, and I'll give you some flavor to those, that really gives us competitive advantage. And in terms of capital, um, it's scale. It's the scale of our capital as well as the partners with whom we invest. And we are not the biggest in the world by any stretch of the imagination, but we are big enough that we can compete in opportunities that um, are less competitive than those that are smaller. Mm -hmm. Our capabilities are how we add value and manage risk in leasing, management, and development. And we think that that's a way to generate alpha as an investor, and that is an, a, a skill set that's taken us many, many years to refine, and we are never done that journey. Um, Co-investors are like and similar institutions who tend to have a longer um, investment horizon as we do, um, who have patient capital, who don't necessarily have a need for cash flow, and you know they are part of our they are part of our um, remit, if you will, in terms of how we're able to compete on the world stage. And lastly, you know this is harder to do as you get bigger. We do have 2,200 people who largely share a set of common values and have an aspiration to be a part of a, a, an exciting journey and a winning team. Mm -hmm. And when you're able to field them in Berlin or Boston or Sydney or Toronto, um, and you combine it with those other things that I just mentioned, I think it's the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, and we're able to compete on any stage in which we've chosen to go. Can I just ask this whole podcast series is, is um, interviewing uh, leaders like yourself whose organization started in Toronto and have grown internationally. Is, is there something about being from Toronto that's contributed to your team's success? Well, if, I, if I'm true to my uh, Oxford heritage, the company started in Edmonton, oh. um, but it did move to Toronto and has been there for several decades. Um, I would say yes, and, and that's in two dimensions. And it's largely in, I think, our, our shareholder base. So Canada, I think, is about 3% of the world's GDP. It's quite small. It's 6% of the world's 
institutional capital, the OMERS of the world, the CPPs, um, et cetera. And then if you look at those institutional investors that are governed and run well and have um, some long history of that, it would index meaningfully more than 6%. Maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 15%. And so that shareholder uh, base or institutional investor base is pretty well respected around the world. And that affords us uh, to be taken seriously by governments, other potential partners, uh, people from whom we want to invest with or buy from. And um, it's a good calling card. Mm -hmm. It comes with, I think, an acceptance of um, they know what they're doing, they have some money, and they bring along humility as part of that experience. So what about challenges to going global, you know, adapting to different local cultures or governments and government policies. Do you have any, uh, any thoughts on that? Sure. I mean, we have lots of experience around this. So fortunately, from a timing standpoint, you know, our big push was done at a really good time. And that's not because we were smart and we saw a financial crisis. It just was coincidental. So we expanded in 09 and 10 and we showed up in markets like new york and london when there was um, no capital when people were looking for uh, capital partners such as ourselves there was a lot less competition and i think we were able to make some mistakes that um, today would be a higher price to pay hmm. so we had a learning in terms of expansion that um was good from a timing standpoint. And Oxford had previously done some investing outside of its borders where it did it from the front of an airplane flying into a market. Um, that did not work. So what we've learned is you have to put boots on the ground. You have to put people on the ground. You want to staff it with locals who know their neighborhoods, who know other owners, who have relationships with local government, um, who know what neighborhood is up and coming and which one has seen uh, its better days. And so that's uh, part of our journey and our experience. Something that's difficult to maintain and achieve in that is um, a corporate culture that has some unifying commonalities when people come from different parts of the world. It's not like we have a group of people that have all worked together and lived together in the same place, and then we disseminated them out. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, it's an ongoing journey. Um, tax is a complexity. Currency is a complexity. Um, having to be impacted by multiple jurisdictions from a regulatory standpoint is a complexity. Time zones for our management is a complexity. Right. So I would get up at seven o'clock and walk to work. And I typically walk down Park Avenue and I make my first calls of the day to either Asia or Europe, where it's either the middle of their day or the end of their day. And, you know, you end up picking up the phone again at nine or 10 o'clock at night when the other part of the world is getting up and, you know, you've put your kids to bed and you're about to go to bed. So mm -hmm. it is not for everybody. And um, we're learning as we go. And I think we have enough experience to know what our pain points are and where the risks are. 
and I welcome any suggestions that anybody has any day about how to do this better. <laughs> That's a really good summary. And um, you're mentioning neighborhoods, and you're you're. I'm calling you uh, in New York. Um, let's talk about. Uh, I think Oxford's probably. Um, one of the most publicized projects, and that's the Hudson Yards. I mentioned it in my intro. Um, can you just describe in, in, in sort of a nutshell um, what's exciting about the project, maybe what the project is, uh, and some of the challenges you face to, um, to deliver the project? Sure. So it, it, Hudson Yards is absolutely an amazing project, and it's been um, a tremendous learning experience for many of us personally, and the whole organization. So if you're not familiar with it, it's on um, the west side of Manhattan, uh, around 10th Avenue and 30th. And it's two 13-acre sites over an operating rail track. And so that was a great example of us being in the right place at the right time. And that project... um, was tied up by others and dropped, I think, three times before we stepped into it with our partner related. And it was because it was right in the peak of the financial crisis. And uh, my predecessor, Blake Hutchison, who really put us into that project, and it was, you know, his relationship and his vision Mm -hmm. um, had some, you know, he has an expression that business travels at the speed of trust. Mm-hmm. And somebody he knew and trusted pick up, picked up the phone and said, would you like to do this with us? And he said, let's do it. So I believe we broke ground in 2012 on 10 Hudson Yards, which is the most southeastern portion of the project. And, you know, we did not know how we were going to capitalize this whole thing or how it would play out. I would say it has gone beyond anybody's expectations in terms of speed and success. And for those of your listeners who knew this part of New York before we started, it was a, you know, brownfield, um, old industrial area, and in some respects, a bit of a wasteland. And now it's completely transformed Manhattan. It's one of the most connected Uh, locations in New York. It's really allowed for the expansion of the whole definition of of Chelsea and West Chelsea. And it's a true mixed-use project where people come to live, work, shop, and play. And it has changed uh, the city in terms of the expectations of occupiers and what they should expect from space, both in terms of building technology as well as amenities, placemaking, etc., so you're so saying it's been an amazing journey. So you're saying that there's, and I, I'm sure you would, you know, being the head of the company, you would boast that there's nothing else like it in in New York, uh, based on what you're what you're saying. It, 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 I've seen pictures, I've seen your video. It really does look uh, quite phenomenal. What what is the vessel? What, tell me a little bit about the vessel. That 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 seems to be um, getting a lot of uh, hits on Instagram. Yeah, the vessel might. I mean, I'm making this up. I don't know how much is based in fact or fiction, but I would call it the most Instagrammable place in America. So the Hudson Yard sits at the top of what's called the High Line, and the High Line is a a reclaimed and abandoned railway that goes through the west side of Manhattan. And it was reimagined starting in the 80s, and the neighborhood 
uh, and community came together to reinvent it as a, um, a linear park. And they turned an abandoned railway into an elevated park, and that terminates right at Hudson Yards. And so coming on to what's called the plaza from the High Line, you walk to this thing called the Vessel, which looks like a bit of a um, honeycomb or a beehive. Mm-hmm. Um, it was commissioned by uh, an amazing artist called uh, Thomas Heatherwick, who's based in Europe. It was engineered and manufactured in Italy. Um, I think it's 164 different connected staircases. And it's just an amazing experience, both visually and to walk on it. And it's open to the public, and it's part of the whole Hudson Yards community and experience. And it's one of many reasons why people go there to check it out. It sounds like a real great stair climbing exercise with a lot of opportunities for for, um, selfies and the like. How many more years left uh, before it's fully built out? Yeah, so we're on the last building right now at the northeast corner of the site, and I should know the exact delivery date off the top of my head. You'll you'll have to excuse me and your listeners for not knowing, but I believe it's 2022 is the last building that is currently in situ and will be completed. We have not even started the West Yards, which is another 13-acre parcel um, adjacent to the East Yards. And so let's call the first phase of Hudson Yards from groundbreaking to completion 11-ish years. Um, The West Yards might be another 11-ish years, but we have not put a shovel in the ground yet. So all of us, including me, will have to stay tuned to the answer to that. You mentioned earlier the advent of technology and its impact on real estate. I, I just I want to touch upon that because I know that you were recently invited to be a guest speaker about technology and real estate at the big real estate forum held in Toronto in early December. And, and for those who aren't familiar with the real estate forum, it is arguably the most important annual real estate conference in Canada. Um, so how is technology making a difference for Oxford, particularly as it competes on a global scale? Yeah, technology is huge in a couple of dimensions. One would be its impact of our thinking as a thematic investor. And so it would be obvious to people that it's a headwind to traditional retail. Uh, technology is a tailwind to warehousing uh, through e-commerce. But even before that, you know, technology's played a role on real estate. So go back to the early 1900s, the introduction of the car in the city. And you as a planner would know that that had profound changes on cities and real estate. Um, before that, probably vertical lift in the 18, late 1800s um, and enabling high-rise development. So we, we think technology plays a big role in the economy and in society and that manifests itself in space. The other way we think about technology is how we're able to use it to invest, manage, and develop in a world that is technology-enabled and digitally-led. And so the real estate industry is very far behind the curve on this journey as compared to other industries. And Oxford, I think, is at the forefront of the real estate industry in terms of its own 
digital transformation and how we use technology as I said, as an investor, manager, and developer. And so we've brought in new talent and hired capabilities with expertise that we've never had before. Um, we've invested in some of the technologies and tech companies that are the enablers of our, our processes to you know, improve the probability that they will win certain suppliers and um, help shape their product development so that it meets our needs. Mm. Um, we've run for a few years now with uh, an open mindset and an open access to the community in a series of hackathons, smart building hackathons, development hackathons. We did one this year that was executed in Boston, Berlin, Toronto, London, and Sydney simultaneously, which was really exciting. I think it was probably certainly the first uh, real estate global hackathon that's ever been done. And so technology is a really important part of Oxford and where we are today on our journey. So can you give me an example of a, the type of technology that you would explore perhaps through the hackathon? I, I guess it's uh, just a whole bunch of really smart people gathered in, in rooms across um, across your, your locations around the world. What what are some of the, or maybe one type of technology that um, that you can point to? Yeah, I, I can give you an example of a technology, and but I wouldn't say we found them at a hackathon. At a hackathon, what you do is you you expose yourself to ideas and talent that you wouldn't have seen or you wouldn't normally see, and you also expose talent to look at you in ways as an employer where they previously would never have heard of you or considered you. So that's really our approach to a hackathon as opposed to use a weekend forum to find a silver bullet technology. Mm. As it relates to technologies, I can give you two examples. Um, one would be in leasing, where we are both an investor and a customer of a company called VTS, or View the Space, and they're the leading cloud-based uh, leasing platform, and leasing is a process that we execute several times a day around the world, and you know, this year I think we lease 17 million square feet of space. And so transforming the leasing process um, is meaningful in terms of its impact on our business. Mm. Uh, another technology that we would have both invested in and be a, being a customer of is Procore, uh, which acquired a company called Honest Buildings. So Honest Buildings is a cloud-based procurement and capital management platform. We do hundreds, um, I think, probably thousands, 1,500 to 2,000 capital management projects a year that are several hundred thousand dollars each in total about $400 million. In addition to, as I said, $6 billion a year of development spend. So being on a platform that digitizes capital management and uh, project management is a huge um, enabler for us in helping us do things faster, better, cheaper. So those are a couple of examples I could carry on and yeah. talk about energy management and green technology, digital twins, um, dispatching systems, uh, what we call fault detection, um, you name it. Um, the Internet of Things is impacting how we manage space, and we've been on a journey that we call the Smart and Connected Strategy about how we manage 
buildings digitally and through the cloud for many years, and we are accelerating um, those opportunities across the portfolio. And they're a huge part of how we build scale for a global business in what is otherwise previously being, you know, just a local industry. That's really interesting. I'm curious, though, why the real estate sector is, as you mentioned earlier, is lagging behind other industries in in adopting and embracing technology. I mean, you you are clearly um, on the forefront of that, but generally, why the real estate sector is is lagging behind? I think it's probably a multi-dimensional answer to that. Um, Fifteen years ago, we would have had to build our own technology because there weren't any suppliers who were doing anything for us outside of a traditional accounting ERP system. And it turns out, you know, that we're not very good at software development, but we would have had, you know, 40 or 50 software developers across Oxford helping us manage the business and the portfolio. So there's now um, a whole host of suppliers that didn't exist. Part of that is because the venture industry has discovered real estate. It's the largest asset class in, in the world. And so there is venture money and entrepreneurs coming into the space to provide solutions and disrupt it didn't exist a few years ago. And I think the other element is just cultural. You know, the industry is uh, averse to these solutions. And a lot of players, in fact, most, and, and we are very much on this journey, we're not done, haven't had the skill sets internally to embrace technology. Hmm. So all that's changing. The suppliers are there. Um, the solutions are there. And we're certainly building the capability to onboard these solutions and build a mousetrap that is different than we have in the past. And technology is very much at the center of that. Mm -hmm. And I think others are going to catch on. And those that don't, um, they're going to lose some competitive edge. Hmm. I want to end up by talking, but kind of wrapping it up and bringing it all back home to, to Toronto, um, sort of the impact of, of Oxford's global experience on, on projects in Toronto. There is a, a, a big one that's, uh, that was recently announced by your firm called Union Park. Um, and that's essentially at the foot of the Rogers Centre, the home of the Blue Jays. Uh, 4.3 million square feet of proposed development, mixed use. Um, anything that you want to uh, highlight um, as examples that you can draw from your global experience on that project? Yes, absolutely. Um, a few learnings over the years. I mean, I, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, so I'm going to guess that we've we've been a part of probably 40 plus, maybe $42 billion of development projects in the last decade. So you learn a lot when you do a lot in many uh, different jurisdictions around the world. So one would be, you know, we've learned something about design. And I think this is something that Toronto could learn from and the importance of design and quality and that really we are making a contribution to communities and skylines and cities and that um, we have to be very thoughtful about what we do there. Um, and I don't think that's an innate in, in the Toronto development experience. I think that's something that we've brought as a learning. Um, the other is just the ambition of some projects like a Hudson Yards would really compel us to think about the importance of the public realm 
and to think about master planning in a way that is uh, a lot more encompassing than, you know, just building the box. And that's where we would have had some of the inspiration to build over the park, uh, sorry, build the park over the rail tracks, whether it's from Hudson Yards or other projects that might exist that aren't ours, but in other jurisdictions like, like London or Washington, D.C., et cetera. And, you know, mixed use is part of our vernacular and our belief is that communities are more vibrant when there's a whole range of uses. So the last 10 years have really set us up, I think, well to, to be a good steward of that land. We assembled that site starting in um, probably, you got to go back to 2000, I think, when the Royal Bank sold uh, 22 properties and Oxford acquired them, including the block from Blue Jay Way to John Street. And then we later acquired the uh, part of the assemblage that's to the east of that and going up to, um, um, you know, the end of the convention center and the Intercontinental Hotel Mm -hmm. at Simcoe Street in 2011. And we've spent the last several years working with the community and various stakeholders and the city uh, to imagine a totally different future. And that's what you've just described in terms of Union Park. Yeah, it's really exciting. And actually, I should point out that one of the first interviews I, I had was with the executive, former executive vice president for the Blue Jays, Andrew Miller. And the whole discussion was about um, the Rogers Center and how it's the oldest ballpark in the major league that has not been renovated. And, and um, they, they're still keeping their plans close to their chest, but clearly something needs to be done. It's outdated. Has there, I mean, your lands are basically a, a across the railway from their, their, their building. Has there been any engagement or discussions with them about their plans or, or your plans? Yeah, we've, we've shared our plans with everybody. Obviously, the convention center is part of our uh, community, and they've been a part of our thinking. Um, the CN Tower and Canada Lands and Ripley's to the south, you know, the uh, entertainment district and the financial district to the north and the east, and, of course, uh, Rogers Center as well. So we, we've shared our plans with everybody. Mm. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to comment on the plans for... Um, the Rogers Center, I'd really leave that sure. up to that organization to talk about their project. Yeah. Well, this has been really, really interesting, Michael. I, I really appreciate your time. I can hear the, the cars honking in, in, um, in the background of your, uh, behind your office. Thanks again for your time, and maybe we'll get a chance to meet in person at the upcoming ULI spring meeting next year in Toronto. I would, I would welcome that. Um, and if you're ever in Midtown Manhattan... Um, I, I'll buy a coffee. Would, come, come and say hello. I would love that. Thanks again. 